You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Is a way of relating to the law as it exists in the non, um, non-halachic society in which you live. Right, that's, the, that's the simplest way of framing it. It can be opposed, if we're trying to think about what um, the political theory of halacha is, to a vision of pure halacha the way it is, right? What if, what if halacha, the way it were structured now, um, actually had power, um, right? If you had a, hal- a halachocracy. Um, and then it can also be opposed to the halachic vision of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, that all those visions need to be complicated as well, because in the halachic vision of the Davidic monarchy, there is right there's a Sanhedrin which makes halacha right. We have all these right all these sorts of issues. We have the um, you have to, you have to deal with the drasha saran and all sorts of things like that. But for now, let's just talk about those three things. There's the actual governance we live under, which has many many different um, variants, of course. There's the halacha as it is, assuming it had power, and there's the Davidic monarchy. So I want to talk. Um, which is, uh, you know, which is a utopia, right? which is generally conceived of as utopia, although not necessarily as we'll see. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the um, Davidic, the Alachi conception of the Davidic monarchy. And the methodological challenge is trying to figure out how you construct this, A, a because it's, um, it's utopian. Right? That's always a challenge. That's always a challenge when you're dealing with halakha that uh, we have no record of what it would actually be like if it worked. Uh, B, because on many topics like this, all we have um, really to work with for a thousand years is the Rambam. Um, so that, right, so that, um, as uh, my son-in-law Yehuda said to me about something else a while back, I don't remember exactly what it was, that you get a, you get a possibly distorted vision of what Judaism says about something. If you deal with, if when you address topics, which only the Rambam deals with formally, uh, because then you end up thinking, oh, we must Paskin like the Rambam. But you know, on every other issue, it would be right that if, if other people weighed in, we wouldn't necessarily end up Paskin like the Rambam. So maybe the Rambam has a, a disproportionate influence on our thinking about these issues than it really, uh, than it really should. Um, the third issue, I think, is that we, when you're trying to figure out how you approach this question, so a lot of it is involves um, both narrative and legal text and trying to figure out how the narrative text tie into the law, which is not always explicit, is a challenge as well. Okay, those are methodological challenges. And the third thing, full disclosure, is I have actually written up this um, shear, um, but I have not succeeded in getting it published anywhere. Uh, right, so maybe we'll think of, think of ways of, of ways to put it afterwards. Um, I think... Oh, I have a idea. I have a great idea. You could, Rabbi Clapper, you could write a book, and it could be a chapter in the book. Yes, thank you, Josh. <laughs> that is definitely an idea. Uh, that is definitely an idea. Uh, and I would like it to be, if only to get this article out, it'd be great. Uh, that's to be revised a little bit, I think, because, um, because, um, yeah, I think I, I put it into Hakira and I think they wrote it too academically and they, and you'll see that there's a challenge and there's something you have to phrase in a sufficiently firm way. I didn't in the article and, uh, maybe you'll tell, you'll tell me whether I succeeded in doing it this, in, in doing it in the Shira or not. Okay. So let's, let's, um, turning to the Makara. So we're going to start with, um, start with, with Dvarim. And here's the here's the claim I want to make about um, about Dvarim. If you look at Dvarim, you will see that um, there the king is given no powers uh, explicitly in Dvarim at all. Right? Dvarim is structured both substantively and um, and literarily as a as as um, fear of as fear of the king. Um, right? That the um, you start. You, uh, you, you start. You start off by you have a list of things he can't do. He can't be Barbenashim. He can't be Meshiva to Amitzrayma. Sorry, he can't be Barbenashim. He can't be Meshiva to Amitzrayma. He can't be Barbenashim. Uh, and then the things we're afraid of, we're afraid of him being Meshir Levavo. He can't have. He, he can't be Marbekesev. He has to write a Torah, right? And the whole purpose of this is Levilti Rom Levavo Meechav Levilti Sur Minamitzvaya Minusmo. All right, so. If you just read the Torah, it's pretty clear that what we have is a very, very restricted constitutional monarchy, um, right? The whole the whole goal of Parshat Melech is to end up with the king not being exalted, and particularly the king cannot be above the law. Um, and that will drive interpretation. Right? One of the questions you have to have is why does it have to be Mikara Um And so it seems like the 
right, that the purpose of that is based on the parallelism is you can't, right, the reason you can't have a king as an outsider is because you don't want to run the risk of the king, right, of the king seeming that he's not bound by the same law as everybody else. Uh, at the same time, the, um, the, if I say the king can't have too much, right, king can't have too much money, so that implies, right, that we have the doctrine of implied powers in the Constitution um, that should be familiar here, which is if the king can't have too much money, then the king must have means of acquiring money. The king can't have too many horses, and the king must be able to have either a, or have a stable, uh, right? I don't know what, how you deal with wives or not. That's all, right? That's a whole separate issue. So what I think is that the mood of the of the text in Dvarim is clear, but that the um, but that the content is open because we don't write the again the mood the structure of it is all about limiting power. But you somebody could argue that the reason we need so many limits on power is that we start off with presumptions about power, even though those presumptions about power are not articulated anywhere in the text. Okay, um, questions about that? Okay, so we move to Yeshua. And Yeshua is very different, right? Yeshua has absolutely no limits whatsoever. Um, right? It basically says, right, to Yeshua, whatever you want goes, and you can kill anybody, right? We will kill anybody who, um, right, who doesn't listen to you. Right, so Yeshua seems to set up an absolute, um, an, an absolute monarchy, and the only thing it really encourages him to do is to be chazak ve'ematz. Right? You, know, you, 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 read, you read the text of Yeshua, and if you divorce it from context, it would be terrifying. Right? It's a group of people swearing absolute allegiance to a leader, right? Who, right? Whose will is law, who has no, right? Who has no restrictions whatsoever on his power. Um, can kill whoever 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 disobeys anything he says, and the only thing we want right is we want people to, right, we want we want him to make sure that he does not um, that he does not he's not weak at all. This is uh, you know if you want straight Hobbes. Yes, Adina. Can't hear you. Need to unmute. Well, he, yeah, like, but but who says the Yoshua is about a king? Yoshua very good. Very good. Maybe Yoshua is not a king. Maybe Yoshua is a Haras Shah. Right, that Yeshua is right. That he, that he's that he's. Uh, they gave him absolute power, but that every intention that as soon as Yoshua, that this was not an ideal model, and as soon as Yoshua, who was great, went away, we would go right. We would go back to pure um, democracy, whatever it may be. Could be. Right, it doesn't do use the word king. Absolutely. Do you think the same like? Do you think the same like reading of the text gives you a sense that Moshe is a temporal power? You mean the text of Chumash or the text of Yeshua? Yeah, kind of both. Like, because like, if you thought Moshe was a, a, a temporal power, Yoshua would be his like temporal successor. Sure. So we have the question whether Moshe has <laughs> didn't know. It seems like Yoshua has a different kind of role. Yeah, we could say Yoshua didn't. Moshe didn't melech. Right? That's how we frame it halakhically. Yoshua didn't melech, and Moshe didn't melech, or doesn't. I would say is you know the, if I'm thinking literarily in a certain sense, I could argue there's a certain you know there's a you have, you sort of crack up when you say. Just as we gave complete obedience to Moshe, so to give complete obedience to you, I'm sure Moshe Rabbeinu would have laughed hysterically hearing that, right? Uh, right? What, what, what sort of complete obedience, right? So yeah, yeah, right. That's why you can be suspicious of this text, uh, right? Because it doesn't seem to conform to reality. Yes, Bracha. Wait, sorry, I was not unmuted. Now I am. Um, two things. First, mm-hmm. along the line of what Josh was saying, that they say that you have Raki um, Yeah Hashem. Um, that's like not of it's not even that you have to be like Moshe it's that Hashem has to have the same relationship with you that you have with Moshe which seems like a pretty high standard to set and then also we talked about like a literary like thing that we saw that we weren't so sure if you meant to point this out but in both Dvarim and in Yehoshua it says rock and then at like the whole list of things that are limitations. And then here also it says, and then also, so those seem to be very strong limitations of his power in that like Hashem should be with you, like Hashem was with Moshe, but we say, so that seems to be a very strong, like 
high bar to be setting for Yeshua. And also, Hashem just told him that like a bunch of times, but you're also saying you're going into the land and trying to kill like 31 of the most powerful kings. So it, well, like at first glance, I hear what you're saying about getting him absolute power, but I think if you look at it for like a little bit longer than like really the seemingly absolute power is very, very limited. So I should, let's, let's, I think we need to be more precise. What you have, there's a difference between saying there's a limit on your power and saying there's a limit on our loyalty. Yes. Right. Sorry. Right? No, right? It is correct to say that you're sure. But, uh, but, but you say that like Yoshua has nothing if he doesn't have the loyalty of the people. This is true. What I would suggest, you know, that there is a, there, there are circumstances where you put people up and they're dictators until you kill them, right? You don't object to anything they do, right? They, there's a, it's a binary system. While you're in power, you, you're, you're absolute. And if you lose power, you have nothing. And that, I think, is fair to say, that, that they, that they qualify, Devarim qualifies the king's power. Yeshua qualifies the people's loyalty. In yes. both of those, right? I think, and I think the literary point is absolutely valid, right? That, you know, that if you assume Yeshua is written against the background of Devarim, so when you look at, you know, the difference between Raklo Yerbel and Hashim and Rak Vazak Vematz, right, right, that's, that's very stark. And which way, Rak, so you could read, right, if you're biased the way I am, you could say, Rak Yashem Imaf, well, obviously God isn't going to be with you if you do anything immoral or wrong, right? So they're hedging their, right, they're, he- they're hedging their bets by saying that you have to do, you have, obviously you have to do what God wants. And we're but only going to follow Right. So that you could say there like, you know, they even, you know, if if they really think will come be Israel Kimosha owed, so they're just right, so they're just uh, right, they're telling him up front, not really, no, it just sounds yeah. good. Uh, right, so you have to figure out what Loyakimosha right Loyakimosha means, right? You have to you can deal with the medieval philosophic works about the um, the nature of hyperbolic comparisons. Um, in uh, right, and you then you can compare it to the half the after the Riyaka Kamocha, right? In the discussion, right? Discussions about that, right? So, those are right, those are valuable points. I would love to uh, though says uh, that he'll be with with Joshua, like he'll be with Moshe, right? In the beginning of the same chapter, yes, God like says he will, yeah, right. God says he will be. I think that's correct. Uh, that he'll be right, but you know, so yeah, no, the Israel's response very much paralleled what Hashem said, that's right. So, to make right, so. So it might be we just need to bracket lo Moshe right, which is what many Rishonim do and say that's only talking about on this axis, mm-hmm. right? and and other axes it's other ax, other axes it's fine. That's that's certainly true as well. Okay, uh, so now we have um, we have Dvarim and Yeshua. We move to Shmuel. Um, okay, reading reading Shmuel, Shmuel's depiction of the monarchy is very much um, sort of the nightmare of Dvarim. Um, right, the king. Right, the king. The the king does the king does a, a series of wildly, uh, right, of wildly un, exercises his power in unlimited ways. The only limitation you have a hint in is that it says that um, he'll take a tenth of your crops, and it you can always say that that doesn't mean that his his tax rate is ten percent. It means he even takes your maser, um, right, or even or he takes over the he takes over the 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 ecclesiastical administration as well as the uh, as well as the political administration, so right, it's very hard to find any restrictions on the vision Shmuel has of the monarchy. The problem is that Shmuel, uh, that as we all know, Shmuel seems to be extremely unhappy about the about the desire for a monarchy. So you can claim, right? These are all the positions that show up in the Gemara, right? You can claim that um, you, can, you can claim that Shmuel says uh, says this says this because. It's not true, and he's just warning you about what could happen, even though that would be against the Torah. It could be that Shmuel is saying, look, you shouldn't want it, but this is what it is. And there's a third position, which may or may not be the third position of the Gemara, which is Shmuel to say the monarchy didn't have to be this way, but because you asked for it badly, this is what, right, we're punishing you by changing the, by changing the rules of the monarchy um, to impose this on you. Um, even, right, you can come up with more complicated literary versions in which Shmuel says this is going to happen, and he believes that's what God that's that's what um, God is imposing on it, but right, but really there's a machlokas between Shmuel and God because Shmuel thinks this is a bad idea, and God thinks this is not a terrible idea. You have all the disputes about what exactly the people ask about, um, what the people ask for that is wrong, um, which I think is very difficult to justify any of the claims 
uh, that what the people that it's something specific about what the people are asking for that is wrong because what they ask for fundamentally seems to be dvarim. Uh, right, so it's very, so it's very, it's very hard to, it's very hard to just to um, to justify that. So really, what you have is a, I think, is a deep tension between. So you have you have dvarim, which is all about limitations. Yeshua, which has none of those kinds of limitations. Shmuel, which denies the existence of limitations. And you have to figure out how you read these, right? How you read how you read these as um, as a whole. There's one other thing you have to read, which which is too long to put on the makaros, which is the rest of Nevi'im Rishonim. Um, and the rest of Nevi'im Rishonim includes a whole bunch of stuff. It includes the it includes the decline of Shlomo. And I think you all know, right, that if you read the story of Shlomo, Shlomo violates the things in Dvarim one by one at the end of his career. Um, right, so that um, so that we know that the, you know, the, the narrative of Malachim seems to tell us that the if you're not really careful, or maybe even if you are, the restrictions in Devarim aren't going to hold. Uh, we know that the Nevi'im say lots of terrible things about kings. We know that the monarchy splits. The Nevi'im, the, the Nevi'im denounced kings of both. But then there are kings who are seen as great. And the and there's no way to deny in Nevi'im Rishonim that the Davidic monarchy becomes ideal. Right? Everyone is dreaming about the return of, return of David HaMelech. And Shlomo, despite his decline at the end of his life, Shlomo's, right, the, the beginning of Shlomo's reign is still set up as a utopian era in which the Beit HaMikdash gets built and everything is perfect. So you have to p- figure out a way that you, um, you have to figure out a way that you can integrate all that. Um, right? So if, you're, if we're now where Chazal are, right? so you have three programmatic statements. You have Dvarim, Yosh, maybe Yoshua is a relevant programmatic statement, and you have Shmuel. Those three are, I'm not going to, I hate using the word shot. Those three read straightforwardly are in great, Right, are in um, are in great great te- grave um, grave tension with each other, and then you have experience, and experience um, can experience on the one hand should lead you to be very cautious, and on the other hand, um, it seems that it didn't you know it didn't leave people with a vision um, that this right the, the experience of monarchy was not sufficient to cause people to abandon the idea of monarchy. And there's a very good reason about that, which is, among other things, which is Sefer Shoftim. Right, Sefer Shoftim teaches you what happens when you don't have a monarchy. And that goes badly also. Whether it goes badly because you're constantly, um, you're, you're constantly subject, subject to external enemies, and whether that's actually better when you have a king or not, that's issue number one. You can always say it's always good when you have a strong king. When you don't have a strong king, it's just if you don't have, you don't have a king at all. And we go back to Rakhazak, Bemats, and Hobbes, um, right? And alternatively, also, right, also yeah, the other the other result is um, that you internally, uh, right? So I I argue that the um, that um, you have to when you're reading you know, if you're reading you're reading you're reading Tanakh you're reading you know as Chazal and as we should. So you look at it and you say. Sefer Shoftim tells us, you have the vision, okay, if we only had a king, everything would be great. And then you read the Vim Rishonim and Yeshaya Yirmiya, and it turns out, you know what? You have a king, not everything is great. Does that mean that we're choser bo on Sefer Shoftim? And then we say, no, 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 that was a mistake. Actually, we prefer Sefer Shoftim to not having a melech? No. Because Sefer Shoftim ends with Kedagash Begiva. Right? Nothing like, nothing like Kedagash Begiva, really. Happens or that we can see on the surface in the VM, right in um, in the VM Rishonim, and in some sense, David Amelech is the paradigm because David Amelech mistreats certain specific women in his life, but probably you can walk the streets safely, right? And that's a real value to have create a society where you can walk the streets, where you can walk the streets, um, where you can walk the streets safely, and even if Bathsheba wasn't necessarily safe, but everyone else is. So I think that you know that you can argue that you know that the that you emerge from um, from Nach with a very you know with with a recognition that kings are often evil, that kings are often corrupted, that even the best of kings can um, right can be corrupted over time um, by by power, but it's not clear what the alternative is. That's better, right? The only the only the only things we're presented right we're presented with. The practical things we're presented with are monarchy, 
which doesn't have any, which we don't see any hint that people actually obey the explicit rules of Dvarim and anarchy. And monarchy is probably better than anarchy. Um, and we have these brief you know, moments where it seems like the kings do obey the laws of Dvarim. But we don't, we don't see any moment where the king is formally called to account by the rules of Dvarim. Okay. Um, so that, right, that gets us through, that gets us through Tanakh and it gets us through um, Chazal and you can figure out right, how you, right, um, how you, how you read Chazal on these, uh, in these, um, and how you read the various positions in Chazal. And you can always decide how you paskin. Okay. So we'll get to what is my, um, my, I think my contribution to this, um, which is to read the Rambam. Okay. So you read the Rambam. So my point, and let's see it. What did what, what did you think? What did you think was the most in, were, the, were the most important things to notice about the Rambam? Yes, Zach Beer. Um, that it, the king seemingly has unlimited power, but it's restricted sort of by like the little you know like you know point that it can only be for national needs. And when it comes to national needs, basically you can do whatever the heck he wants. Again, maybe with a restriction on violation of halacha. So that's a good substantive description. Uh, okay, Bracha, what do you want to say? I'm not muted. Um, that he, the Rambam seems to have like a, almost a very modern approach to it, that the king is there to serve the people, not that the people are there to serve the king. So that is... Um, Right, so that that I think that I think is also correct. Um, okay, right. I think that that um, those are good substance descriptions. Okay, so now I want to ask, what do you see as the literary relationship between Dvarim, the Mishnah, and the Mishnah Torah? Right, the, right, so right, we can say the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah Torah, the Mishnah, and the Mishnah Torah. Uh, right. So what what happens literarily between them? So let's start with the Mishnah. What is it, right? What, what, what does the Mishnah do, or how does, how does the Mishnah locate the descriptions, the, the, the restrictions in Devarim, and how does it, um, and how does it, uh, right, and, and I guess there are two versions, right? So in the structure of the Mishnah, um, where are the restrictions, and what does it do with the restrictions? Okay, yes, Abby. So what it mainly does with restrictions is specify them. For example, it specifies what lawyer Bella Nashim means. It's, so there are three positions. One position says he can have at most 18 wives. One says um, that he simply can't have wives who lead him astray. One says that he can't have any wives who lead him astray. astray. And also he can have at most 18 wives who don't lead him astray. If you look at Abigail. So it's... Yeah. Um, and that's, I forget which mission that is, but that's the mission does, it specifies um, what likewise with lawyer Belarus Hussein, it says, except for his, like, it says he can only have enough for his parents. Okay. And, okay, I gotta, I gotta try and push that, though. Right, because he, right, he's, with, um, Zach said in the Rambam, that the, what we say is the restrictions are except for the national good. You're saying specify. I want to um, let's let's start. I guess start. I guess you have for a semi-comic effect, right? So if I walk over to you and I say, you know what? Don't have too many wives. Um, so how many? Right, how many of you would say that meant not more than eighteen? Not so many, right? <laughs> right. Okay, Bacheva Bacheva thinks eighteen sounds like a reasonable number, right? Not to have not to have not to have not to have too many wives, but the rest of you seem to think that eighteen might be a little bit excessive. Um, well if you look at like Achashverosh, Achashverosh has a whole mansion sure. of Lakshim, so in comparison literally eighteen there. is very reasonable. All depends on your standard. Yes, yeah, Sarah, what do you want to say? There. Um, I was just, <laughs> I was just going to comment on that, but he was a lot later. He was like more of sort of like the effect of like multiple wives, but also I was going to say that like, it just, 
interesting. It's sort of like, yeah, like it's it's very Torshavalpa. Like it sort of like just like brings like out like the very the specific. Yeah, like sort of what Avi was saying that like he brings out more of the it bring the mission brings out more of the specifics. Like not really like the nature of like the national good or anything or like the purposes behind it, but just like sort of the shot of what's going on. Okay, so I'm gonna try and make I gotta I gotta try and make a stronger point. We'll see if you buy it or not. If we take a look at the structure, let's let's go back to Kumash, right? So if we look at if we go back to Kumash and we look at the structure of of Dvarim, right? So it starts off by saying, if you say I will have a king Kikhova Amin, then Som Tasim Alecha Melech, we're gonna leave out, out the question of what whether Som Tasim is a mitzvah or not right now. Um right, and then we say Som Tasim Alecha Melech. Right, so the first thing we tell you is you can have a king, but God get, but God has to choose the king. Right, we'll leave open the question for now whether that means that God has to constantly choose the king, or whether God chooses the king once and then he's in power, then he's in power forever. Okay, then we say that the king has to be mikerev achecha, and it can't be an ishzar, right? Which we're not sure why. Why does it have to be mikerev achecha and not and not ishzar? But I argue that that the end we discover. That's because you can't allow a king who develops an aristocratic, uh, aristocratic self-conception. Then we have this whole list of qualifications, um, right? Right? That he, right? And then a really strong emphasis that uh, really strong emphasis that he has to obey the law. Right? If I were to fr- if I were to say that the envelope structure of it is, the beginning is and the end is. The, the end is and in between they're just restrictions. Right? So if I were reading Torah, I would say that the the theme of the Varim is extreme suspicion of monarchic power. And the fundamental goal is that you cannot allow the king to be above either the law or the people. Right? That's, what's set, that's what's set up thematically. You have to choose someone mikerevachecha so that levilti rom levavomeyachav, and it has to be a sharif charoshem lokecha, so that laturmin is fayiminu small, and the symbol of that is that the king has to carry a sefer Torah around him the entire time. Okay? I remember just reading somebody recently who suggested that the most important moment in Jewish history was when the nobles made King Alfred, whatever it is, write down the Write the law down. So the, that was the mo- first moment that John, John, right, right, right. Richard was Magna- the brother while Richard was off crusade. No, that's the Magna Carta, right? I'm talking about something earlier. Um, I okay, think. that might have been Alfred then. Um, but uh, that's an amazing thing. The notion that the king should be bound by law. For Dorem has this as a fundamental notion that the king has to be bound by law, and being bound by law doesn't mean being bound by a different law than everybody else. It means being bound by the same law as everybody else. Okay, now we get to the Mishnah. Okay, the first line of the Mishnah, even though that gets qualified in Halakha to not be about Malthus based of it, but that doesn't seem to be straightforwardly shot in the Mishnah. The first line in the Mishnah is the king cannot judge or be judged. It's difficult to, to, to imagine a stronger opposition than on the one hand, right, Dvarim, which says the whole goal is the king can't be above the law. And the first statement of the Mishnah is the king is above the law. Um, okay, he can't, right, he can't be involved, he can't be involved in the legal system at all, and guess what, also, right, also, right, you can't marry his wife, right, his, right, marriage to him removes him, right, removes her, removes her from the, um, from, from the universe, also he can't, right, also he can't do, um, he can't, he can't engage in Avelos, right, so the second thing we tell you is after the king is above the law is that the king is above the people. He's a different kind of human being. Okay, then we have right, a list of the a list of the king's powers. We tell him he can go to war, he can be porates derech, and there are no restrictions on being porates derech. And he gets first part. So we start off with a set of powers that are not explicitly mentioned in the Torah, and those powers are unlimited except for he needs the rishus of the Sanhedrin for from the Chama Then we go to all the war to all the all the powers that he has in Devarim, and all the powers he have in Devarim are, you're right, they're made concrete, but they're made concrete 
at a very high level, right? In which Lorel Hashim is like, right, is, you know, you might, right, if I tell, if I tell you, if I tell you, look, I want you to be careful, right? Don't be, don't, 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 don't accumulate excessive wealth, right? That's what I tell you, you know, let's say when you're, you're a teenager, right, and your parent tells you, don't be hung up on money. And then, you know, 10 years later, you come back and they say, what I meant was that you should, you know, that you should always give away, you know, after you have $2 trillion, you should give everything else away. Right, that's pretty much what the Mishnah's limitations of the power of the Melech are, right? Is you know, is that there are these restrictions, but in practice, these restrictions, uh, right? He shouldn't have a multiple a multiple amount of horses for himself, rather the amounts necessary for his chariots. What's missing? A limitation on the number of chariots. Right, he just can't have extra. He just can't have extra horses, right? But have a million chariots. Go ahead, Don. I now I need now I need the horses for my chariots. Um, right? Don't have too much money, just enough to pay your army. How large can your army be? As large as you want. Um, okay, so that's the second part of it, and the third part. And then after we go through all this, um, right? So then the um, right that right then then we mention the uh, we mention we mention the Sefer Torah as the last as the last stage, but we leave out we leave out Levil Tirum Levavomeichav. And leave it, uh, right? And we leave out Levilti story, right? It's a requirement he has to do this, but we leave out the things we're afraid of. And then we finish with, as opposed to Levilti, we've let it, nobody can ride on his horse, nobody can sit in his chair, nobody may use a scepter, nobody can see, may see him when he's taking a haircut, right? All these are room Levavomeichav. Right? And we end. And we end where the Torah, the Torah begins with some Tosim Alech and then tells you, and then tells you all the things that Lo Tosim Alech shouldn't involve. And the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah builds towards some Tosim Alech which requires so many of these things that the Torah seems to forbid. Okay, this is why I didn't get into Chakir because I wasn't from enough, because I, I, right, I presented it this way. Um, but it's really quite startling. It's really quite startling, and when you assume that the, which I, I assume is correct, right, that the authors of the Mishnah have the varim in front of them as they are writing this section, right? It's really, it's really quite, it's really quite astounding um, that they write that um, that they write it this way. And then you have to think of other things in like literature, right? So, right, not being able to see the king naked. So, what king? What king is very concerned about things like that? That people will see him naked and therefore think that he's Human. Okay. Yes. Yes, Zach. At least Gutsky got to it before me, Paparo. Yeah. Thank you. Gutsky got on, on the chat. Yes. That's exactly right. Right. The the the, the rules of the, the rules of the mission in the Varim seem to be intended to make the to make the king into Paro, which is wild. Okay. Now we take the Mishnah. And now we look at how we look at the Rambam. Now the Rambam is writing with two texts in front of him. He has right the Ram or the Ram has a big safer a big safer devarim which he carries with him ever, ever always presumably. And then he has um, right and then he has um, the Mishnah in front of him. And let's take a look at what the Rambam does. So we'll start with what the Rambam does with um, with all the with the restrictions of the Rambam. Loyarbel. Lo yarbelo nashim elishmanasre lo yarbelo lo yarbelo lo yarbelo susim right um, except for mirkavtos the Rambam says where's the Rambam get we get to the Rambam's restrictions I'm sorry my article has English both the Hebrew I should have printed out the Hebrew as well so the Rambam's the Rambam's line is lo yarbelo nashim and if he adds if he's marben nashim he gets makos lo yarbelo susim and if he adds an extra sus he gets makos. Right, and the Rambam is very clear. Enough for his chariots means enough for his chariots, and not horses which are purely for ornamental purposes. They have to be useful. Okay, and then the Rambam, right? So, right, so all the places where the where the Mishnah puts in a qualifier at a very high level, the Rambam immediately says, "But he has to be subject to the law." Not only subject to the law, right? The whole point, right? He, right, he gets Malkos if he right if he opposes it. Okay, that's on the the substance of the issues. Is that the um, 
is that right, is that the Ramam takes the Mishnah's the Mishnah's uh, what if I say liberal concretizations of the Torah's restrictions, and the Ramam tries to qualify right to qualify those liberal restrictions. Um, the um, right where the Mishnah says Poris lo derech, and there's no right, and there's no and there's no holding him. The um, the Rambam, I don't find out where the where the Rambam says. The Rambam says he may not have to declare money ownerless, and if he does, it is theft. Right. So the, so the Rambam the Rambam has restrictions, as you as you all pointed out, that they have to be all the things have to be done for public good, as opposed to private good. Um, and now we look right. So that's on the substance, uh, right? On the substance, um, right? The, the very right. The very end. The Rambam says that right, that if he that it, that in Parsha Shmuel, right? That if he takes people at, right for his work, then he has to pay them, right? That's in terms of so on all the substance of the Rambam. What the Rambam does, right? I think that is right is you have Dvarim, and then the Mishnah seems is a reaction to Dvarim. So when I mean a reaction to Dvarim, right? So try and say it firmly. It doesn't mean that the Mishnah is is reacting to Dvarim. The Mishnah is reacting to a potential interpretation of Dvarim. And saying that can't be, right? Even though you might that might feel to you like scare quotes shot, right? The Mishnah is not willing to live with that understanding of Dvarim. And the Ramam looks at the Mishnah, and the Mishnah sounds like it's in favor of a basically uncontrolled monarchy with it, you know, which is a high aristocracy. And so, what does the Ramam do? Uh, what does the Ramam do structurally? The Rambam, right? The Rambam begins. With the Mishnah's, uh, with the Mishnah's, uh, the Rambam begins with the Mishnah ends, right? The Mishnah ends with these restrictions: you can't ride on his horse, right? Etc. The Rambam begins with Kvod Hamelach, and then he puts in all the things the Mishnah left out, right? So too it commands him to have a lowly and hollow heart, and he must not behave with excessive high high-handedness towards Israel, right? So what does the Rambam do? He puts in at the very beginning, says, "Look, the Mishnah says you have to have Kvod Hamelach. I I agree the Mishnah has, says you have to have Kvod Hamelach, even though." The, the the Torah never said explicitly you have to have but I the Mishnah right that's what Chazal said Som Tosim Alecha means I agree with that but Kvod HaMelech within the framework of Levilti Rom Levavo Me'achav and right and Levilti Rom Nimitzvot Yemin Yisvot right so structurally what the Ramam does is he puts the things back he puts he puts the things from Dvarim that the Mishnah left out back in um, okay, right, so the, um, right, and he ends with it, right, the Ram ends with a charge to the king. Um, right, and all his actions, all his actions should be for the sake of heaven, and his purpose and thought should be to exalt the true religion and to fill the world with righteousness, right? There's a mission statement. There's no mission statement in the Mishnah. Yes, Avi. How much of what the Rambam adds to the Mishnah is in the Gemara? Uh, the short answer, none. But it's all in Chumash. And it's all in the Vim. But uh, very little of it is in the Gemara. Okay, as a contrast to the, right, to the Rambam, so I gave you, right, so you don't, you know, and that sort of, that sort of, you know, brings home obvious point. I gave you Tosfut. Right, Tosfut is presented with the Right with with you know, with the the grand moment in in which um, Nevi'im um, challenge um, challenge right not just challenge the king personally the way that um, that Natana Navi does to David but challenge the notion of monarchic powers Harasachta Vagami Rashta right where Achav wants Achav wants um, Nevot Israelis um, Karen. He doesn't right. The vote refuses to sell. So Achav right. Achav has him killed through um, right. Has him killed through the you know, by false through false witnesses. Eliyahu Navi right. He's able to arrange it, and Eliyahu Navi comes to him and says, "Have a agami rashta." Now, the Tosvos problem is why is why is what Achav did wrong. Right, that's right. It does this, this whole legal issue. How is it right? What justifies Eliyahu Navi in right in criticizing Achav when 
obviously Akav could just have taken it whenever he wanted. And if Navot refuses to sell, why isn't Navot a Mori Bamalchus? Which right and right so Tosis Tosis comes in a word straight from Yehoshua. Right, and his vision, right, his vision, right, his, his vision of is that Achav is a Melech, Yehoshua is a Melech, neither of them are Davidic kings, so what? Right, so the point that Tosis has to say, oh, it must be that of course Achav could have told Novot that he, right, that he had, that he had to, that he had to sell it, but Achav gave Novot the misunder, the, the impression that he had the right to refuse. And since Achav gave Novot the impression that he had a right to refuse, Therefore, it was wrong for Achav to kill Navod without telling him that he didn't have a choice. All right, that, you know, I, I have to say that that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that it doesn't strike me as pshat in the story of, uh, of, of, Eli, of Eliyahu and Achav, but I think it's pretty clear that, that Tosfot read it that way. And at least one of the positions in Tosfot, right, the, the, the last position in Tosfot seems to me to be uh, in favor of absolute monarchy, I don't think there's any way. I don't think there's any way to um, to read any restrictions on on um, on power into um, on power into Tosfut. Now we should be. I, I want to just say caution, caution because I, I want to make sure that um, that um, you don't think that divine right of kings was the standard position everywhere. And so it's it's a great chiddush that the Rambam doesn't believe in the absolute divine right of kings. Um, Professor Alan Brill years ago um, sent me to a book whose name I forget immediately, but it's probably in my paper, Fritz something or other, um, who argues uh, fairly convincingly that the divine right of kings is a is a is an ideology that arises um, in medieval Europe and didn't exist previously. Um, and so Tosfo, it's not like Tosfot is retaining. The obvious traditional posture is more like Tosfot is absorbing a, um, right, a radical, a radical, a radical contemporary, contemporary Kiddush as opposed to continuing it. But I'm biased. I very much want the, um, very much want the, uh, want the realm to say it. So now there's, there's one critical element in here, which is, um, is there an obligation to obey the king? Okay. So reading the, Reading the Rambam, do we think that it is an obligation to obey the king? So if you read, if you read, this is source eight. If you read the, um, if you read the Sefer Mitzvot, the Rambam says that, um, source eight, um, the Rambam says, um, right, underlined section, the Cholzman Sheyetzavah Melech Hazet Sivui, Okay, so if you read the Rambam in the read the Rambam in the um, in the Sefer Mitzvot, you get the um, right, you get the impression very much like Tosfot. We quote Yeshua. And the result of um, and result the result of quote, of quoting Yeshua is that the king has absolute power. Um, okay, what is what does the Rambam say in um, in the Mishnah Torah uh, about the about about obedience to the king? Right, anybody have the right passage? Let's take a look at it and see if you can find it. I mean, he says that if you disobey the king, then you get put to death. That's true. But that doesn't seem to be, that seems to be a consequence of the king's power, not a positive obligation to listen to the king. Actually, right. So that is my, right, that is, that is my, um, that is my position, that, um, which Rabbi Bleich gave me the language, that in the Mishnah Torah, the the king had the king the king has a right to command but there's no corresponding obligation to obey. There's consequences. Yeah, the king has a right to kill you, and guess what? When the king has a right to kill the king has a right to kill you. But here's the quick question: Do you have a right to defend yourself? Um, I would 
guess from the fact that he says that you can't avoid the tax that you actually can't. So I want to I want to argue no, right? The taxes taxes are an expressed power of the monarchy, uh-huh. but just ordering you to do whatever he wants, right? That's right. That is all right. That I think is a um, is the king has the right to order it. The king has the right to compel you, and you have a right to resist. And this you is what's called the right of yeah. revolution, right? Which the prince, whatever his name is, argues was assumed in all the in all the Germanic tribes that um, the king has the right to command, and if you disobey the command, then you have the right to launch a revolution. If you win, you win. You lose, you lose. But it's not immoral to launch a revolution. Not I mean, yes. you could get real wacky and say that the obligation to listen to a Jewish king is because of Dina de Maclusadina. We could do that, right? But, but you know, then we reverse the order. That's absolutely right. And we may yet get there. Absolutely. Yes, Abby. Yeah. But in Sefer Mitzvah, it explicitly says that we have to obey the king. That is correct. So I think he changed his mind. I think the Sefer Mitzvah is right is um, is his, the position of his youth, and he changes it in the Mishnah Torah. That's my contention. Right? You can decide for, you know, for yourself about how, right, how you think of chronology in the Ramam and all of that. Uh, also, put out another another important line, which the Ramam gets for the Gemara, but is not in the Mishnah, which is that um, that you have the right to you have, that Osek Mitzvah Patur in the Mitzvah applies to uh, applies to the king's commands. Right, that the king has to, um, right, that you can tell you can tell the king, right, and that seems to me to create a right of civil disobedience, right? You can just say I'm learning, and as long as you're learning, you can disobey the king's, you can disobey the king's orders. Now we have to talk about like how seriously is that? Is that, um, is that, is that the same as um, you know David Amelech from the Malach Amavis? That you can avoid the king's command as long as you can keep it going for twenty twenty four seven, but if you know, but if if somebody smashes a pitcher next door and your concentration and learning and concentration and learning briefs for a moment, so that you have to obey the king and the king can have his malachamava standing over you and saying, the first moment I catch you being with Atul Torah or eating, right, then you have to go do what I wanted or else. Or does it mean that you can say, look, you know what, that if I'm, that there's basically a right of a status of a conscientious objector, but the, um, but the price of being a conscientious objector is, is that you have to spend your entire time Doing right, doing public service. Doesn't Osek Min Mitzvah not apply to Talmud Torah? Uh, you let Eliana in. She's waiting to come in. I let Eliana in. She's here right again. Thank you. Um, I I think that Osek Min Mitzvah is a complicated notion. Um, I, you probably all know, probably don't all know. Right, Lichtenstein has an has an amazing piece about this, which I have great. It's one of those pieces of Lichtenstein I have great ambivalence about, but it's amazing. Uh, which he says that the the Ramam in the Gemara says that Osei Mitzvah Pesach Mitzvah doesn't apply to Talmud Torah, but there's a place where the Ramam says She Osei Mitzvah Pesach Mitzvah the Chol Shekain to Talmud Torah. Right, and the question is why that is, and the answer of Lichtenstein says is that it's not that mitzvahs override Talmud Torah; it's that if you have the opportunity to do a mitzvah and you don't do it, that undermines the lishmanis of your Talmud Torah. But really, he says, in, in a perfect world, you would sit in a base medrash all day and no up mitzvah opportunities would ever come up and life would be great. You could just learn Torah all day. It's just because Torah is supposed to relate to the real world. The real world sometimes intervenes with obligations to do mitzvot. But, um, but, but, uh, unless you, but if you assume that some doesn't create an obligation to listen to the king, so then Osek Mitzvah would apply perfectly. Right, would apply perfectly well. It's not even patur mitzvah. It's osik mitzvah mitzvah Okay, that's a that's a sort of elaborate way of answering the question. Um, yes, bracha. You just answered my question. Steve. I didn't answer your question. Okay, we want at some point we could um, we could we can do a, a gather group just doing the Erlichstein article, which is enormously enormously fun, and it's like one of the uh, people could have like sort of to me which like article, which article is it? Uh, which article is it? It is. Is it ideology of Hezder? No, 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 no. It's called. Uh, hang on a sec. Where is my copy of Mishchat Aviv? Where is my copy? It's in Mishchat Aviv. I might have taken it off the shelf because I wanted to. I wanted to. Um... Yeah, it was on my. It was on my Shavuos table. Sorry. Um, but it's in Mishchat Aviv, and it's called. Um, 
on page 119 of Inferno Um It's like when I, when I think of the Luchenstein, um, really only two people I think I say Zechertarikli Bracha about with consistency. Um, so that's, that's the Luchenstein and Ron Soloveitchik. That article is just sort of like, every once in a while somebody writes a Torah article that is them. Right, that to me was like you know because it's inconceivable that you could do something wrong, that you don't you don't have to meet all your obligations, but you know the real world the real world is, is learning. Right, and, you know it's not like it's not like you feel like your your world his world wouldn't have been lacking if you only got to if you only got to learn Torah, um, as much value as he gave to other things. I think you know, you know you can imagine the author of that you know fitting with you know, the story you know of, of, which I love you know and, it, and it's, it just feels like you were ready to even try to emulate it. Of uh, you know sitting down and learning after Tishabum because the tannis from Torah is worse is worse than the tannis from food. Um, anyway, it's a wonderful article. That's how I would have, that's how I answer that question. Um, okay, so we have is right. So my claim is what we have is um, a, a, a the Torah which is all about caution, but which can be read as having implied powers. The Mishnah. Which takes those implied powers and you know, sort of expands them. The Rambam, who reacts to that expansion by saying, "No, no, no, right? You know, the, the restrictions are really there." Um, Tosfod, who doesn't seem to have reacted quite the same way, and even in the Rambam, uh, I am suggesting that there is uh, that there is an evolution which you can buy, which you can buy or not. But in the end, then we're still left with a, uh, and then we have stories which we have to, you know, we have to deal with the underlying tension of the celebration. Of Malchus based David and you know and and the celebration of Shlomo and then the reality of Shlomo and the right that has to be played out. Um, some of us will be more you know some of us will always have in mind Herzach to Begami Rashta or Natana Navi and David and some of us don't right and that will affect it. But what is that like you know that's like what is the position of um, of uh, of Jewish tradition about the, the the monarchy? So we could try to do we could say is you know what. The position is that there are these restrictions, but there are also these restrictions imply lots of powers, and then, right, and you know, and, and then you have to figure out how each how that applies in circum, to circumstances. But that, um, but, but we can we can try and come up with a fully consistent shita in which the constitution for Moshe was the constitution for Yeshua, was the constitution for David, was the constitution for Shlomo, was the constitution for Achav. Right, we we believe in a constitutional monarchy, and it's really very consistent. And even though there are shifts in emphasis between um, the Mishnah and the Rambam, right, those are right, those those are really minor against the backdrop of a consistent position, which we're going to formulate in you know in uh, clear halachic terms. Uh, I want to argue that's not correct, and that's where we get to the last makor. Uh, right, the last makor is the Maratz Chayes. Um, so Marat Chayes, uh, right? Those who don't know about him are welcome to go look him up on uh, look him up on Wikipedia. Um, I would say that basically, a really unfair way of saying it is that um, post Chazal Jewish political theory has basically four stages, four four figures. It has the Rambam, it has the Ran, it has the Abravanel, and it has Marat Chayes. Right? Between the between the and Marat Chayes, there's basically no Jewish political theory at all. Is the harsh way of framing it, despite the the series now I think up to volume four about Jewish political theory put out by uh, Daniel Lazar and Malcolm um, Lorberbaum and all those and all those you can find little snippets, but an attempt to really think about what should the political theory of Judaism be, you basically have those four stops. Um, right, and here's what Maris Chayes says. You read it, but I'm going to read it out loud anyway because I like reading it out loud. Okay, here's what he says: L'chein nireli devar chadash, v'chol mishpatem lucha. Okay, so that he says that everything about the laws of the monarchy is a social contract. Right, the people agree to make certain sacrifices for the good of the whole. Okay. Right. So now that we understand that the 
purpose of the social contract was the good of the state. So nobody gives up their gives up their goods for right when there is no constructive purpose, and so taking goods for no constructive purpose is right is obviously a violation of the social contract and therefore illegal. Okay, so here we're having the you know, we're having the debate between Hobbes and um, Hobbes and Locke right about whether whether the social contract actually gives absolute power to the king or doesn't, the Maras Chayes comes out, right, comes out on the side of Locke. Um, okay. Um, right, so Shuv Chazra Din, V'lav dafka b'monam rechusham hifkir l'sof p'roshel amelach t'ola shir genehem m'shalto, v'at, right, says, v'at din adam moshel v'shalit al-chayav, v'asru l'abed l'atzbod l'adat, v'afil l'achbol b'atzmo v'asur, Okay, so the Maras Chayes comes up the um, comes up with what I think is um, the comprehensive political theory. I'm not sure. Did I give that? Is there, is there another quote from Maras Chayes at the end? That's read nine. No. Okay. Uh, I hope the quote is convincing. If not, you should read the whole essay in Tzadik uh, in, in, uh, Nevi'im. basic position is that a, the social contract can be constructed as giving you, um, as, give, as um, giving the people the complete right to sacrifice whatever they want for the sake of the state, even life, but that all the powers of the king are not derived from the Torah, the powers of the king are derived from the consent of from the consent of the population. Now, the challenge you have to face in um, constructing any political theory is trying to figure out um, what's right. The challenge of all right. The challenge always is right. Why should a constitution be binding? Why should even a democratically or even consensus affirmed constitution be binding on descendants? And what happens when um, what happens when people uh, right when people break it? I'm just gonna. Qualify uh, No, don't read Robinson Blake's thesis, honestly. <laughs> Not to find out about Chayes. You want to read it as an interesting piece, but it's. it's I. Right, Blake is, you know, it's my Rebbe and beloved. You'll hear me talk about this a number of occasions. Um, and Dr. Judith Blake is wonderful, but I really don't like the dissertation. I really, really don't like the dissertation. I don't think it's fair to Maras Chayes at all. Um, so, okay, any case, that's just my quote. Really, really don't like what it says about Maras so, um, The um, Yeah, so I think Maras Chayes' thesis is that um, what happens, and I think he says it explicitly, and I don't know if I, gave, if I gave the right full quote, is that the Torah basically gives the king no power. A social contract was formed in the time of Yoshua that gave the king near absolute power. Um, Possibly that social contract was renegotiated in the time, right, in order in Malchus based David. But that the Torah has no political theory other than the king has whatever powers the people grant him. The only question is whether you treat the king, the people grant him as in the fictional social contract sense of Hobbes, Locke, Mill, all those groups where you say there's a there's a contract, you know, at some point back in history, or whether you frame it as an explicit constitution, the way the United States does, and whether the con and it, whether the social contract can be renegotiated or not. So I argued in the public version of the Shir that obviously we haven't had the even Malchus based of it for two thousand years. So we clearly, if Mashiach came, we'd have to negotiate a new social contract, right? So the answer: How much power should Mashiach? The Mashiach have is whatever we, however much we wanted to have. Um, but I, I want to, you know, my argument is that there's no, you can't, all you can derive from the Torah's conception of ideal monarchy is that we're very suspicious. We don't meet, even though we're very suspicious, that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that there are circumstances where people might want, legitimately want more power for the king. That if, in fact, the people give up the rights to the king, that we don't have very strong restrictions on that, but that there's no inherently best political system in that regard. You can have England with a purely figurehead king, or you can have, uh, right, or you can have absolute monarchy, you know, under the czar. All of, each of those are consistent um, with what Torah tells us. 
Sophia, what did you want to say? So if let's say a huge constituent of the people were to be Mori Bamalhut, are we going to say that it's not really Mori Bamalhut? Because it's people saying we no longer want you. We don't want you to have this power. Or we say, how would that function with Mori Bamalhut on on an individual level? Right, that's a good question. You know, on the first level, this is the this is the fight about the civil war. To what extent is a social contract binding, even if you change your mind? All right. So I'll I'll get to give my uh, my my you know, my um my prenup speech. Um, right. You have, those of you who haven't heard my prenup speech, uh, which is on one version of it is on the uh, is is on is on YouTube. Um, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.